Hey, today good? Welcome to everybody who's watching at home. My name is Mike. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to take that out right now. We're going to be in Romans once again, chapter 12, just looking at three verses, verses 14 through 16. If you would please stand in honor of hearing from the Lord. <clears throat> Continuing our study, book of Romans, God's relentless grace. Romans 12, beginning in verse 14. Word of God says this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Thank you. You may be seated. There's a popular phrase. I bet you've heard it. I don't know where it originated, but call it a, a sort of cliche. And the phrase is this. Christianity isn't a religion. It's a relationship. Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. Now, I think I know uh, what people mean when they use that phrase, and I believe I've used that phrase myself. Uh, what we mean by that is that Christianity, true biblical Christianity, isn't this set up a set of rules, uh, a bunch of religious activity, and if you check all the appropriate boxes, God will be pleased with you, and you can have your sins forgiven and go to heaven. We would reject that. We would say that, that that's not biblical Christianity, this religious system uh, to demonstrate our religious devotion to God. In fact, religion is man's attempt to reach up to God, but the biblical gospel is that God has come down to man in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's about a relationship with him. And as many of you have done, we would give a hearty amen to that, right? So that's the cliche, but with that cliche and many other cliches, there are many potential dangers. I'll give you one. If we say Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. If you look up Christianity in a textbook or a dictionary or an encyclopedia, if anybody still has those, or you go to Google, you go to Wiki, whatever. You know what it says about Christianity? It's a religion. Kind of goes against what we just said in the cliche. Problem is, we mean something else with the cliche, and therein lies the potential danger. And we need to unpack these cliches. Far too often, we rely upon them to do the hard work for us. We need to, like I did with, with the Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. you got to unpack it and explain it. But then one could argue, if you continuously have to unpack and explain cliches, then should we even be using them in the first place? Which I think is a good question. Here's another one. Religion says do, Christianity says done. I know I've used that one. Now, Put yourself in the shoes of the hearer. They're on the other end of that cliche. And they really don't, not, they're not a Christian. They don't understand Christianity very well. And they say, okay, religion says do, Christianity says done. So are you saying that there's nothing for the Christian to do in Christianity? We would say, well, no, no, that's not what we mean. So again, confusion begins to set in. So it's done, but not all of it's done. Some things still need to be done yet. What is the Christian to do? See the confusion that can occur if we just simply throw out a cliche? Must be unpacked and explained if we're going to do that. And the reality is, everything that needs to be done for you and I to be in a right relationship with God has been done. We can have our sins forgiven and have peace and fellowship with God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He said, It is finished. It's done, right? We do not contribute in any form or fashion to that salvation. As the famous quote goes, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. But once you're in that right relationship with God through Christ, we now do. 
We do. We do things not to earn God's favor. We've, we've got that through Christ. Not so that God will love us. He does. That's why he sent Christ. But we do because we love God. And we want, we want to show our gratitude to him, our thankfulness to him. And we want to look more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. But make no mistake, there's do's in Christianity. And again, that's the explanation that is needed. Because otherwise, if you just throw out a cliche, it's, it's theological shorthand. It, they're not designed to, to convey the truth in any in-depth manner. So is there a place for Christian cliches? I think so. If you insist upon using these, and we love our Christian cliches, do we not? I think if you're going to use one, you, you use it after the explanation has happened. You use it like a bow on a present, right? I, I, I liken it to like this. The, the explanation, that's the gift, right? That, that is a good thing to give somebody is theological understanding. Then at the end, if you want to tie it up with a ribbon or a bow with a cliche, it might just, you know, make things pop for the individual. Oh, it's not about religious activity. It's about a relationship or whatever the case may be. Problem is we're just whipping out bows and ribbons with no gift. Is that what you want this Christmas? Here, I got you a bow. Well, thanks. Right? See, we far too often are relying on bumper sticker theology. And if the totality of your theology can fit on a bumper sticker or a coffee mug, you need to fill it out a little more. For your own good, because theology helps you, but also for the good with those with whom you seek to communicate. Because if you say there's nothing to do in Christianity, you've got to reckon with what I just read and what was read last week in you know, Romans 12. What do we have here? We have things to do. It is a to-do list. I read it to you. We're to bless. That's something you do. We're to rejoice. We're to weep. We're to live in harmony with one another. We're to associate with the lowly. Bless, rejoice, weep, live, associate, verbs, actions. We got ourselves a to-do list. Now, to strengthen my point, I'll even go back to last week in that short section of Scripture we looked at there. We are to love. Love, biblically speaking, it's an action. It's not this warm fuzzy feeling we get in our heart, which the, the, how the world understands love. No, it's shown. It's demonstrated. It's an action. We're to outdo one another in showing honor. You got the word do right in there. <laughs> outdo one another. We're to serve the Lord, rejoice, be patient, be constant, contribute, show hospitality, verbs, actions. This whole section in Romans 12 is one big to-do list. Now, I don't know about you. I love a good to-do list. I got multiple to-do lists. I got one on my phone. I got one on my laptop. I keep a spiral notebook. We even in our house have a chalkboard. And the chalkboard, I, I got the idea from my cousin. He pastors out in Lancaster. He pastors Lancaster E. Free. And in their home, they have a chalkboard. And his, his wife will, will write on there, you know, Bible verses and these nice scripted fonts. And I thought that would be a nice addition to the bongo home. So I went out, got a chalkboard. Problem is, I don't write like, you know, love one another or live in harmony with one another. I write, mow the lawn. <laughs> Not very spiritual, but I love me some lists. I, I'm so sick with the lists. You know what I do? Maybe, maybe you've done this. You accomplish a job. You do something. You meant to put it on the list, but you didn't. So you go to the list, and you write it down, and then immediately scratch it off. Anybody ever done that? Can I get a witness? Y'all are sick like me. We need a support group. We got enough people to get a, another small group going here at Living Water. But for all you list makers and task-oriented people like me, Romans 12 might present a potential issue for us. Because if you, if you approach these commands, these do's, if you will, and if you approach them like, uh, like, uh, like my mow the lawn list, like things that are just tasks that we do, you're not going to accomplish them in the way they're intended. Let, let me borrow a point from last weekend. Pastor Mike talked about 
Christianity being hard work. He said, true love is hard work, to which I say amen. But I think, too, that in this section of Scripture here, I might double down on that and say, it's not just hard work. It's actually impossible to do unless you seek to do it in a certain way, a certain manner, with a certain understanding, fueled with a certain power to accomplish these things in the way in which God originally intended. See, anybody can fake it. You can, we can all pretend to bless people when we're really cursing them in our heart. That's not what God is looking for. That was the issue with the Pharisees. Oh, outside, look beautiful, immaculate. Inside, filthy, dead men's bones. That's not what God wants. We know that. Anybody can superficially rejoice with another or weep with somebody when you're really not doing that. You're faking it. You know, anybody can fake this, but God wants obedience in the inward parts, from the heart. It's always a heart issue with our God. And these verses are so countercultural and counterintuitive. These do's, if you will, they must be done in light of what's already been done. Let me explain that. Where are we in Romans? Chapter 12. And we've been preaching through Romans for a long time now. We started with Romans 1.1, made our way all the way to where we are today. So that means there's a previous 11 chapters that, that, that happened in the book of Romans prior to where we are today. And if you remember those 11 chapters, a lot of doctrine, a lot of theology. Paul's like, this is who God is, and this is what he has done. The, the, the first 11 chapters is, who is God? What has he done? Now, chapter 12, now in light of all of that, you do. This is the practical application. This is the living it out. Let me show you through some images I borrowed from uh, the movie American Gospel. We'll put them up on the screen. You have done on the left there. That, that's the gospel. You, you, don't, you, you don't do the gospel. The gospel is done for you by Jesus, right? And that's the relationship that we enter into through grace, through faith, right? But now, once you're in that relationship, now you do. Now there is a law to obey. Again, it doesn't earn you anything. It doesn't get you into heaven. There's no merit achieved in it. We do it out of a redeemed heart, a reconciled relationship, and now we just obey God because of what he has done for us. And the next slide shows a few of the epistles in the New Testament. This is the layout. A lot of theology, doctrine, that's what's been done. Now you do. Romans, Ephesians, 1 Peter. This is the pattern in the New Testament. But it's not just in the New Testament. It's all throughout the entire Bible. Let me take you to the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 20. This is where we get the Ten Commandments. Notice, it doesn't just begin with commandment number one. What does it say before that in verse two? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What is that? What God has done. Verse three, now you do. You shall have no other gods before me. And then on and on it goes with the other nine commandments. This is, the commandments in, in, in Romans 12, they don't come in a vacuum. They come after a lot of other information has already been shared. So these are instructions on how to live, but they're not just instructions of how to live in any old way. It's, it's how to live in light of who God is and what he has accomplished. This is what I'm calling gospel living. Gospel living. And so what's Paul doing here? He, he's saying, I gave you 11 chapters of, of, of who God is and what he's done. Now, chapter 12, verse 1, you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, and live out this now transformed life you have by the renewal of your mind. Verses 1 and 2. And then verses 3 and following just flow from those two verses. Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Let's begin with that word, persecute. See, in America, I think we understand persecution definitionally. We know what it is. We can define it. 
But I don't think we understand it experientially, at least not like our brothers and sisters overseas. See, throughout history and even happening right now, many Christians have been beaten, chained, imprisoned, stoned, decapitated, sawn in two, burned with fire, and boiled in oil. Of these people, the Bible says the world was not worthy of them. I love that. I'd love that to be said of me. The world was not worthy of them. And many of us, we know nothing of that sort of stuff. Maybe some of you do. Maybe. But that's not to say that persecution doesn't exist in America. It does. And it's increasing. There's a hostility out there. There's a ridicule that happens against Christians. There's hatred. There's people that have lost their jobs. There's people that have suffered financial loss. People have been ostracized, excluded, purely because of their identification with Jesus. That's persecution. It happens in the workplace. It happens in schools. It happens on the street. Again, not really to the degree of what we see in other places on the globe, but it's here, and it's on the rise. And we should be ready. And that's what Romans 12 does here, is Paul's like, all right, how do you respond? When that happens, how do you respond? That's his concern. But I need to ask a preliminary question before we get to that. I think there's an assumption there that I want to flush this out a little bit. If I was having this conversation with you on a one-on-one -on -one basis, I would ask you a very wide open question, and I would encourage you to reciprocate and ask me the same question. The question is this Tell me about the persecution you experience in your life. What does it look like? What, what, what is, what's it like? Tell me about the persecution you face because you are a Christian. Before you answer that, let's look at what the Bible says in other places about persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What did Jesus say on the subject? John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. These verses I read tell us two things. Christians will face persecution, and these verses tell us why. The why is because of Jesus. It's on account of him. It's not that they hate us, it's they hate him. And because we're linked up with him, we identify with him, they hate us. And why is that? Because they don't know the Father. Let's zero in on verse 19, though. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Let me ask you, are you hated? Again, let me open it up a little bit. Tell me about the hatred you experience, the persecution that you face in your life because you follow Jesus. What you got? Tell me about it. I fear many of us in this room, we say, what hatred? What persecution? I don't know what you're talking about. The world loves me. Well, verse 19 says that's because you're of the world. I'm just trying to rightly interpret Jesus. He says, if, if I chose you out of the world, then the world would hate you. And if you say, what, hate, you must reckon with what our Savior is saying. You must deal with this. Because I think the case is for many of us, whether we want to admit it or not, our lives look far too much like the world. And that's why we don't face persecution or hatred. I mean, that's just the hard truth. Let's real talk here today. I mean, we either, either we read the words of Jesus and the, and, and the rest of the Bible and we, we just blow it off or it actually means something and apply it to our lives. Second Timothy, all who what? Desire. All you got to do is desire to live a godly life will suffer persecution. 
the question you have got to ask is, all right, what characterizes my life? Godliness or worldliness? Those are questions for you to answer yourself. I'm not your judge. You don't have to give an account to me. Uh, I need to wrestle with these myself. I'll tell you this. I, I have faced persecution. Again, American style. You know, the tamer version. But I have. I've experienced persecution. But the sad truth is I look far too much like the world. That's why I don't experience it more. But I'll give you an example. Last weekend, Mother's Day, trying to be a good son, went up to go see my mom up in Syracuse, spend some time with her. And we have some good candid conversations. And she's told me for years, her friends don't like me. They don't. She told me, so my friends, my friends will call the house, be like, hey, Annie, uh, can we come over? She'll be like, yeah. And then they'll say, but is Michael going to be there? Yeah, that, that, I mean, I, I got feelings. That hurt. <laughs> that, that hurt. Well, why? Why? It's because I'm a big jerk? I'm no fun to hang out with? No, that's not it. I'll tell you why. They want to get fallen down drunk. They want to swear, and they want to blaspheme the name of the Lord. And you know who I am? I'm a big old wet blanket. <laughs> I show up like a gray cloud to rain on their parade. To them, I'm a big party pooper. Why? I bring light into their darkness. I bring Jesus into that gathering. Guess what? They don't want him around either, right? And they don't want me around. They don't want me around. Again, I could be the nicest guy in the world. I don't claim to be, by the way, but I think I can have fun. I like to joke. I like to have a good time. I even have a few pops with them. I will. I don't get drunk. I don't act the way they do. Why? Jesus chose me out of the world. He chose me out, and because I talk to them about him, they don't like me. Just the reality. But you know what? I'm blessed because of it. I'm blessed. And if this describes you, you're blessed. See, when you read the Bible, every now and then, you should insert your name in there. Don't do it all the time. That's a very narcissistic way to read the Bible. <laughs> but when I read Luke 6, I put myself in there. Blessed are you, Mike, when people hate you. And when they exclude you, they don't want you around and revile you and spurn your name as evil. Why? On account of the Son of Man. If people don't want you around because you're a jerk, well, then you're just a jerk. The, the, you can't apply this. you got bigger problems. All right, Luke 6 applies to those because they speak the name of Jesus Christ and they identify with him. Rejoice in that day, Mike. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. So their fathers did to the prophets. You follow what's going on there? They don't want me. I'm excluded from that group. What group am I included in? The prophets. <laughs> You're like the prophets. Mike, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. You think they wanted him around talking about rain, building a boat? They're like, get out of here, man. I'd rather be numbered among them. And so I am blessed. And Paul in Romans 12 says, that's how you are to treat them. He says it twice, in case you missed it the first time. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. What does it mean to bless? I think the simplest definition is this. You want the best for them. Curse is the opposite. You want the worst. You want them to die and go to hell, right? No, you are to bless them. Question, what is the greatest blessing my mom's friends could ever receive? Salvation. Salvation, that God would save them like he has saved me. I'm no better than them. I used to do all that stuff. I'm just like them. I used to do it too. But God saved me. He's shown me mercy. And I want him to have mercy on them too. Whether they want it or not. So I'm going to keep talking to them, not in some obnoxious way. I think we got to be wise, be winsome, be affable, you know, like, like Jesus. <laughs> Do it like him, okay? But I'm going to keep talking to them. I'm going to keep praying for them. 
But my friends, this is not natural. <laughs> this can't be mustered up on, on its own. This doesn't come from me. It's, it's not my human nature. It's, it's something greater. It's, it, this is countercultural, counterintuitive. Why? What comes natural? You don't like me? Yeah, well, I don't like you either. You hurt me? I hurt you. You hit me? I hit you back. You want to mock and ridicule me? Yeah, well, two can play that game. And you come up against me, I come up against you twice as hard so that you know I'm not to be messed with. That's what the world says. And I clean that up by saying messed with. <laughs> That's what comes natural to us. What Paul is calling for here, and God is saying something supernatural. A gospel-driven response, a Holy Spirit-empowered blessing, just like Stephen. Remember Stephen? First martyr, gets stoned to death. Prior to that, you know what the Bible says about Stephen? Four things he was full of. Faith, the Holy Spirit, full of grace and power. That's what it says of Stephen. And he too liked to open up his mouth to talk about Jesus. He does it for a whole chapter. At the end of Acts 7, guess what? They didn't want him around either. What does it say? Then they cast him out of the city. Get out of here, Stephen, with all that Jesus talk. And they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. I can't help but wonder. That Saul became Paul, author of Romans. It, he's a recipient of the blessing Stephen is about to give here. And I can't help but wonder if that doesn't prompt what he writes here in Romans 12. But nevertheless, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus... Receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice. Here comes the blessing. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That's how you do it. That's how you bless those who persecute you. There's many ways you could do it. That's how Stephen did it. Verse 15, Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. So I said these are impossible things to do. How is it that the, this verse right here is, is impossible in our natural state? Why? It's otherly focused. It's all about other people. It's not about ourselves. It's not about us. It's about them. And this goes contrary to our nature. We're by nature selfish. You know who I'm concerned with most of all? Me. That's, that's who I, I have a single focus in my flesh, in my humanity. I have a single focus. Actually, I could say I have a threefold focus. I'm in love with me, myself, and I. I love those guys. They're the best. I think about them all the time, whether they're happy, whether they're, they got joy, whether they got comfort, pleasure, I want to make sure they're satisfied. I'm all about me, myself, and I. Uh, call me a Trinitarian. <laughs> right? But I'm not alone. There's many that are like that. By nature, in our natural condition, we're selfish as individuals and as a nation. And that's what makes verse 15 so counter-cultural. Recently, I was playing Donkey Kong with Pastor Mike. We were downstairs, student ministries room. You know, they got the, uh, the old school video game. You know, a big, you know, stand up and play. You know, these kids nowadays sit on the couch and play. No, you stand up. You play, play these games. We're reminiscing about the old days. You know, you put the quarter on top. You know, that's, that's your way of saying I got next, right? And we're playing Donkey Kong, and I'm just crushing it. I'll just be honest with you. I'm advancing level through level, smashing barrels with a hammer, saving the girl, Right, and I'm looking at the high score, and I see I can get that high score, and I beat it. Enter in my initials, MJB, which gets erased as soon as you turn the game off, but it's good while it lasts. So then Pastor Mike's up next, and I'm thinking, he's older. You know, he's older than I am. Reflexes probably aren't what they used to be. Maybe lost a step with the reaction time. I'm thinking my high score is pretty secure. Well, I got to tell you, Pastor Mike can play. <laughs> he can. 
He's not here this weekend. We can talk about him. <laughs> but he's got some skill. He's almost as good at Donkey Kong as Pastor James is with volleyball. I'll tell you that. So he takes my high score. I had 13,300. He had 13,600. A mere 300 points. And yes, I remember all the details of this. <laughs> and as he's entering in his initials to supplant mine and knock me down a peg, you know what I did? I walked away. <laughs> no, congratulations. Good job. Dap him up a little bit, man. Give, at least give him a handshake. Hey, man, you played well? Played, nope. I just walk off. Went and played ping pong and got beat there, too. It was a bad night, man. Now, mo most normal people will go home, shake it off. Eh, no biggie. It's just a game, right? But I'm not normal. I go home. It's bugging me all night. Having nightmares about barrels rolling at me. I'm smashing them with hammers. No, I'm just playing about that. But it, but it did kind of bug me. Such that the next morning... I can't believe I'm going to admit this. I, I came into church. Before I started my work day, I made my way down to student ministries. Opened the door, flicked on the lights, and fired up Donkey Kong. And I'll tell you this, 16,800. What? Yes, that's what I'm talking about, right? Enter in my initials then promptly turn the game off, thus erasing my initials. So you're like, Mike, I bet you were pretty proud of yourself. I bet you felt pretty good. Well, ironically, I didn't. I felt kind of dirty, in fact. It was a weird mixture of emotions. I felt pretty good and pretty pathetic at the same time. Why? Rejoicing with others' success? Not natural. We want the glory right? We, we, we're jealous. We're selfish. We, we want success for ourselves. I got to get over on you. You can do well as long as I'm up higher, right? It, we don't want the good fortune that others have. We don't, we don't rejoice with them. We're not happy for them. We want the promotion. We want to be recognized. We want the high score. So if this is how not to do it, totally in the flesh, Okay, how do we do it? You do it in the spirit. And I was thinking about a time where we're talking about other people, and my, my mind always goes to Living Water Community Church. This is who's going to be receiving this message. And I thought, has there been a time recently where we rejoiced together as a church family? And I think there was. It was a few weeks back. It was baptism weekend. It was during the 11 a.m. service. You might not have been here for it, but let me describe it for you. Many... Young people and, and adults, I believe, got baptized that weekend. But at 11 a.m., there was a young man by the name of John Whitney, and he got baptized. I asked the Whitney family if I could share this. And what happened was John came up, Pastor Mike's doing the interview. John's all, yes, sir, no, sir, very polite, very well-mannered. Uh, John and Michelle have done a bang-up job raising John John and his older sister, Johnelle. Very just respectful, very polite. And John's autistic. And he's given his testimony, and he's right here, and he's so poised. And he's just, he's just projecting out just his story. It was so sweet. It was so beautiful. I was in the back in my normal spot back there. And, and you know, you know when things are starting. The emotions are palpable. You know, you hear, you know, people... Sounds like a sick ward in here, but, but people are all just getting teared up. You know, I'm back there doling out tissues. And John uttered this one phrase, and he said, Jesus is greater than autism. And I just lost it. I mean, I'm done at that point. Check, please. I'm out. Tears running down my face. And I'm rejoicing with him. And what I'm doing is, because I'm selfish, what I did is I interpreted what he said. Jesus is greater than autism in light of my family situation. I said, Jesus is greater than epilepsy. 
And then I thought about all y'all out there that were sitting there. And I thought, John is ministering to so many people and he probably doesn't even know it. Because those out there can say, Jesus is greater than cancer. Jesus is greater than heart disease. Jesus is greater than depression, diabetes. He's greater than Down syndrome. He's greater than a stroke or Alzheimer's or dementia. Jesus is greater than bipolar disorder. Jesus is greater than leukemia or lupus. Jesus is greater than all. You can thank John Whitney for that. Out of the mouth of babes, and I'm like, man... Honestly, I couldn't tell you a word that was preached in the sermon that followed, but I remember Jesus is greater than autism. We're up here yapping for 40 plus minutes. It might be a 17-year-old kid who just drops a dime on us that we remember for weeks later. I, I rejoiced with John. I rejoiced with the Whitney family. I rejoiced. We, we rejoiced together as a church family. And I wasn't alone. I was back there with the Baltimores. You saw them on the video. Tiana and Elder Steve. And John shouted them out in his testimony because they played an instrumental role in him being here that day to be baptized. Why? They're downstairs with the kids. They know John quite well. My family and I, we know him well from children's ministry. I know John and uh, Michelle, his parents, because they serve as greeters. They'll be here greeting in the next service. And I thought to myself... If you were a guest here that day, you would have been like, that's a nice little story. That's a, nice, that's a fine young man. But if you're in relationship with the Whitneys, you're plugged in here at the life of the church, it's that much sweeter. It's that, you, I hope you don't come here and just occupy a blue chair for an hour and a half. Honestly, it's good to attend a service. Wonderful. But if that's all you do, you're really missing out. We have a wonderful church family here, and I am so blessed to know the Whitneys. And that's what made us so tear-filled is because we know them and we know what they've been through. We, we can now celebrate together and laugh together. And yes, we mourn together and we grieve together. And we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. Verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Now, to live in harmony, that's not going to mean we're all going to think alike. We're all going to agree, especially on these controversial issues that exist in our world today. We know that's not going to happen. We don't have any illusions. Of course, that's not going to happen. But what it does mean that in our differences and in our disagreements, we'll have unity. There'll be commonalities amongst us. Why? Because there's a common hope that we have, a common purpose. We have a common salvation, and there's a common spirit dwelling within us that binds us together. And Paul used the example of the body. We looked at it already. But when the word harmony was used, I thought, all right, well, the body's already been covered. My, my mind went to an orchestra. Think about an orchestra different parts, right? You got the brass section, you got the strings, and you got percussion. Very different instruments. I mean, a trombone is very different than a bass drum. Sound different, look different, all of that. But when they're all doing their own thing, as they were designed to do, they make beautiful music together. So we, church, are like an orchestra. And Paul presents two threats to this harmony. He states them in the negative. It's really one thing, but he states it as two. Do not be haughty or wise in your own sight. In a word, pride. Pride. Pride will kill this. It'll kill it. It'll kill an orchestra and it'll kill a church alike. Pride, like all sin, that's what sin does. It kills. And he warns us. You want to destroy an orchestra let the trumpet player think he's superior to the violinist. Okay, so this is real, Tracy. Well, then that, that just shows that I had no idea this is a divinely inspired sermon. Okay? Or point, at least. 
All right, trumpet players evidently feel superior to, what did I say? Violinists. To everybody else. You learn something new every day. To all the trumpet players out there, hopefully you're not taking offense to this, but you're like, not me. But that's how it begins. What I do is more important than them. I'm better than them. My role is more important. I play a greater position. Happens in the church. My theological position is more biblical. My political position is the right one. My stance on this social issue is where everybody should be standing. My opinion is more thought out. My, my, my. Right? Brian Regan said, beware of the me monster. (laughs) Me monsters kill harmony. Don't be a me monster. Now, what's interesting here is the haughtiness and the being wise in your own sight wedged right in between there. And I don't know why Paul arranged it this way. He's like, you know, through 11 chapters, he's very linear, building upon, therefore, therefore, therefore. Romans 12 is like this shotgun, just he's firing all over the place. He wedges between two things about pride associated with the lowly. I mean, I think I know what he's going for. But there's a textual issue there. You might see a note in your Bible. It's actually unclear as to whether he's referring to tasks, like doing lowly tasks, or lowly people. Most interpreted as people, because that seems to fit with what's going on there. And, and to be honest with you, I'm not even a fan of the word lowly. I don't like saying it because it's like, well, I'm up here and they're down there, lowly. Uh, but what does he mean by that? He means that they're, they're low social status. They're low on the social scale financially, educationally, they're just not accepted. Outcasts they occupy the lower rungs of the social ladder. And it made me think of a guy I knew many years ago. I haven't seen him in a long time, been looking for him downtown. His name's Dan. We do street ministry down there, and you get to meet all sorts of interesting people, you know, Jesus-loving people. It's great. And I guess the, the people that we interact with down there would be considered lowly, okay, according to how the word is, is used here. And, you know, let me tell you about Dan. Dan would sleep uh, on the church porch on Chestnut Street. And every time I drove downtown, I would look for him. And if I saw him, I'd go up, I'd, you know, I'd say hi, we'd go to a convenience store, get him a little something or whatever. But this man, he sleeps on the streets and he eats food at Bethesda Mission and Daily Bread. And that's Dan. And he had this big bushy beard. And I'll just tell you, in that beard were things like food particles and coffee. And here's the thing, Dan loved to hug. And Dan would press that beard against my face and I loved it and hated it at the same time. And I thought, this is what Jesus would do though. Jesus would would love Dan. And I think that's what Paul's getting at here with associate with the lowly. Don't look down on them. I hope you're not the type that shouts out, get a job stuff like that. I hear that. I see that. There's a lot of people in this area standing on corners with with cardboard signs. This is just something that just popped into my head. I hope I have time to fit this in. I I just want to give you an idea. I learned this from my sister-in-law. She, um, you know, I I don't advocate for giving them money. I I don't do that. We don't take money downtown. Ken's back there. He can testify. I, I I don't even bring money but we bring goods. And I keep in my car when I'm going to Target or Giant or wherever, and I see somebody there, I I got them handy. And it's a little package, and it's granola bars or whatever. It's some stuff. There's gospel tracts. There's information about living water. There's a little New Testament. And the first thing I say to them, you know what I say? Is I say, what's your name? Like, they have a name, you know? Not just some dude on a corner with a cardboard sign. I get his name, I introduce myself, and it's often you got to get going because the light's green or whatever, and I just hand it to him. I say, there's, there's information in there. If you want some real help beyond just a granola bar and such, I work at a church, I'm a Christian, I'd love to help you. My number's in there, and then I leave. But I'm ready. I don't give him a dollar. I'd rather do that. I think that's a better move. I don't know. Let's just take that for what it's worth. Um, where are we? Let me wrap it up here. So is there a common thread here that ties all this together? And I think there is. It's a single word, 
selflessness. That's it. Selflessness is the key. Why? You persecute me, selfishness says, I curse you. Selflessness says, no, I bless you. Selfishness says, I want the high score. Selflessness rejoices with those who rejoice, happy for their good fortune. Selfishness says, I'm in a good mood, and all your weeping is bringing me down. Selflessness says, weep with those who weep. Selfishness says, I want things my way. I insist you need to join with me, otherwise get canceled, because I'm right. Selflessness says, live in harmony with others. Selfishness says, I don't want the coffee from Dan's beard seeping into my pores. Selflessness says, but Dan likes hugs. Hug Dan. You can wash up later. It's not a difficult teaching. That's why we're not getting into all the Greek and everything. You know what these verses say. It's easy to say. This is the classic. Well, easy to say, hard to do, right? How do we do it? I told you, look at what God has done already. By the power of the Holy Spirit, look to Jesus. Look how he did it. He did each of these. Verse 14, he's hanging on a cross. What does he do? Call down fire from heaven, torch the place? Uh Uh-uh. Legion of angels to get retribution? Uh Uh-uh. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's blessing. He rejoiced with those who rejoiced. Jesus is always at these parties, right? He's at the wedding feast. Jesus, we need some more wine. We're running out of wine. Water to wine. Let's keep the party going. He could rejoice with people. Did he weep? He did. Shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept, right? He wept with Mary and Martha over the death of his friend Lazarus when he was going to raise him shortly thereafter. Does Jesus cultivate harmony? Yeah. He he puts us in a right relationship with God the Father through the work that he has done on the cross. His life, death, and resurrection makes us right with God the Father. So there's harmony there, but then he tears down the wall of hostility that exists between people groups, Jew and Gentile, and all the other different segments of people that that fight with one another and, and says, live in harmony. He's the very picture of humility, stooping to wash feet. He he did what nobody else wanted to do. They all knew what was supposed to happen that night, and they all in their minds said, no, that's below me. Jesus does it. He came not to be served, but to serve. And that's that associating with the lowly. He did it with people, but he did it with tasks. I just gave you one on the Lord's Supper. I'm looking at my watch here in the clock. I, let me share a quick story with you. This happened just Friday, so I didn't make it into what I writ, wrote in here. So I just, I'll just share, take, take this for what it's worth. Friday, I have a conversation with a guy here at the church. Call him Joey. That's not his name, but Joey uh, hangs around the church, and he says to me, he says, hey, if there's ever anything needs to be done around the church, uh, I'm here, I'm, I'm, I'm able to help. I was like, oh, that's great, man. We always got stuff we need to, to get done. He goes, uh, but I don't uh, pick up trash. He goes, I, I, don't, I don't deal with garbage. He said, it's demeaning. It's the word he used. And because I'm always looking for gospel opportunities, like, Joey, uh, you, you consider yourself a follower of Jesus? Yeah. I said, do you know some of the things that Jesus did that could be, quote, demeaning? Like washing people's feet? He's like, yeah, I'm aware of that. I said, okay, so you follow Jesus. Jesus did things more demeaning than picking up trash, but you're not willing to pick up trash. He goes, yep, that's right. That's it. There's no, there's no punchline. That's it. <laughs> I mean, I, I was just like, okay. The cognitive dissonance here is remarkable. Like there's a disconnect. And he just was like, yeah, that's, that's right, Mike. You've correctly understood the situation. Now, I mean, again, either, either the Bible says something to us and we actually follow it and do what it says, or we don't. 
And I'll tell you the kicker to that story, you know where that conversation took place? Right out there by the dumpster as I was emptying trash. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. Jesus did demeaning things, lowly things. He associated with the lowly. Tax collectors, poor, the, the destitute, you know, prostitutes, did I say that? The people of ill repute. And he associates with people like you and me. This is Jesus. He's our example. Our activity, our, our doing is powered by the Holy Spirit in light of what God has done for us. Gospel living, that is how we do what is otherwise impossible to do. If you would like to know more about Jesus, I would love to talk to you about him. We can talk after the service. If you have something you want to re, you know, rejoice in, I will rejoice with you. I, I will weep with you if that's what's going on in your life. My friends, I hope you're, you're wanting to put into practice what we hear. We don't just come in and it goes in one ear and out the other. Let us be doers of the word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you, you told us that apart from you, we can do nothing. We are so dependent upon you. We are dependent upon you for our next breath for the next beat of our heart. We can do nothing apart from your say-so. So I ask that you would empower us to carry out that which has been commanded to us. These are commands. And I pray that my friends here and I, that we would not just say, well, that was, that was interesting to listen to, and then we don't go out and put into practice. We must do that. Not just hearers only, but doers. And so deceive ourselves. We don't want to do that. We want to give glory and honor to your name to let our obedience, this living sacrifice, bring glory to you and to help others. And Lord, that's the same with this offering that we are about to collect. We pray that it would bring glory to you and, and it would help your people and the people who currently don't know you that you would allow for your gospel to go forward, to be spread, and to encourage the saints. Lord, we thank you. You are good. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>